Second Samuel chapters 10 and 11, we're going to focus on 11, and, and this is such a gripping story. We're going to read the entirety of chapter 11 this morning. If you, if you would, please stand with me out of reverence for the reading of the words of our God. <clears throat> the author of Samuel writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in such a way that as the words on this page are being read, God himself is speaking to us, beginning... Chapter 11, verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon. When a David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing, and how the people were doing, and how the war was going. And then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the, from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. And when they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths. And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house? to eat and to drink and lie with my wife as you live and as your soul lives. I will not do this thing. And then David said to Uriah, remain here today also and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. And in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him, that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. And then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. And he instructed the messenger, When you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises, and if he says to you, Why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubbesheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall, so that he died at Thebez? Why then did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, 
Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. And then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it. And encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. And she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Let's pray together. O Lord our God, open our hearts and minds today, please, to receive your word. And O God, I pray we would be changed by it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm confident you've heard the phrase, never meet your heroes. Never meet your heroes. Sometimes, when you get up close, you learn things you wish you didn't know. What do we mean when we say that? Never meet your heroes. What are we really saying? We're saying, you know, no matter who you idolize... No matter how good they might seem, there's something that you're not going to like. And and that's part of what it means to live in a Genesis 3 in a fallen world. No matter who we get up next to, there's going to be something we don't like. But maybe up until this point in the narrative of David's life, your assumption has been that God supplanted Saul in his wickedness in order that he might put a perfectly righteous king named David on the throne of Israel. We're sort of hardwired to think in works-based categories like that. That Saul was bad and David was good, therefore David was king and Saul wasn't. And yet, in the midst of David's illustrious rise, if that's your mindset, if that's how you've been thinking, you might find yourself confused, if not distraught. Here now we see David being drugged down by sin. In the midst of this meteoric rise of David, we see him being brought down low by sin. In fact, you'll notice as we continue in this narrative, the rest of David's kingship is plagued by sin and trouble and turmoil. This is part of what it means though, isn't it? To live in a fallen world. Everything that rises, it seems must come down. Don't don't we see this happen over and over and over again in our world? Every time we think things are getting better, it's like we find out something that actually things are getting worse. All these things we see that are going to reform things or make things better over and over again, it seems like there's a an underbelly to it, a wickedness even in the midst of things we think are good. But we do though, friends. We live in a sinful fallen world. And even as Christians, even as people that are committed to righteousness, and maybe especially as people that are committed to righteousness, we must be aware of and familiar with and wise to what sin does, how sin behaves, and how sin impacts our hearts and lives. I'm going to show you four points this morning. Uh, Four points about sin that I hope will lead each of us here toward repentance and godliness. Four points on sin this morning. Here's the first point. It's this. 
Sin thrives when mission wanes. Sin thrives when mission wanes. When our mission goes to the wayside, sin finds a way to grow and thrive. You might remember in 2 Samuel chapter 8, we see a generalized list of David's military triumphs. And I don't think that's chronological in terms of the overarching story of Samuel because here in chapter 10, if you were to back up and read chapter 10, you'll see that a few groups are mentioned that have active fighting happening against them that chapter 8 says David defeated. So that's another clue to us that this is sort of a serialized understanding of the whole of the military triumphs of David's kingship. Then in 1 Samuel chapter 9, you have one of the high points of David's uh, kingship. You have the story of Mephibosheth. But then in 1 Samuel 10, something odd happens for the Samuel narratives. You, you wind up getting really narrowed in in 1 Samuel 10 on a story of a particular triumph from the list that's featured in chapter 8. You get down, some certain kings are mentioned. You get down really to uh, even the details of the way that the Israelite army under Joab got their way out of a pincher movement. I mean, there's really narrow military detail in the way the text talks about this. But it's odd. It's odd for a story like this to be told with this level of detail in the Samuel narratives, especially when David's not even in the story. Other people are fighting on David's behalf. And yet what it does, what 1 Samuel chapter 10 does for us, is it sets up the context and helps us understand about this Ammonite war. And it shows us something that is, up to this point, very unusual about David. David's not there. He's not there. It's a small sign that David is becoming a king like the ones that the other nations have. He sends others to fight on his behalf, but he doesn't fight himself. Instead, he's still on his couch late into the afternoon, um, not busy about what the Lord has called him to do. He's beginning to look, in fact, a little bit like Saul, who when it was time to fight battles would find himself under the terebinth tree. Uh, the author hammers this point home, though, in chapter 11, verse 1. I, I don't want you to miss it. Almost every commentator thinks that this is something the author really wants us to see, and I totally agree. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. We're about to read about one of David's great sins in his life here. And it's interesting to me, and I hope you'll notice that in this story of a great battle in chapter 10, David is absent, and then the author really wants to highlight to us the fact, chapter 11, verse 1, David is not on mission. He's not outdoing what God has called him to do. David is the warrior king par excellence of Israel. He is known for his military prowess. The last thing on earth that Israel needs is for the king to be on the couch when the army is out fighting the Ammonites who desperately need fighting. I want you to know something, my friends. Sin thrives when mission wanes. It, it thrives in our individual hearts when mission wanes. It thrives in churches when, missions, when mission wanes. When, when churches aren't on mission, when we're not doing what God called us to do, we find ourselves 
tending toward sinful disobedience, first of all, and second of all, sinful division in the life of the church. It's hard for a busy church that's out and about and getting after God's mission to find time to fight, isn't it? To find time to bicker and argue is one of the things I'm grateful for here, your own mission. But I have to ask you this question today. Is your heart set on the mission that God's given you? And you may look and say, it's easy for the preacher to say, you clearly have a mission. You clearly have something that you're called to do. You don't think it's easy for me to have a day where I am focused on something besides the primary things which God's called me to do? You know how many distractions there are in the life of a pastor in any given day? How easy it is to get my mind, my eyes off the ball, to get forwarded away from mission? What's God called you to do? Not only in your work, not only in your home life, but in your Christian walk, what's God called you to do? I ask you this question, if you've taken your eye off that calling, are you aware of the fact that it is so easy right now for sin to find fertile ground in your life? When mission wanes, sin has room to grow. Brothers and sisters, I would encourage you today to think through what God's called you to do and to make sure that your life is built around God's calling and listen, that doesn't just mean church stuff, right? Many of you have vocations that aren't what many of us would call religious, but that doesn't mean you ought not to be about it. If God's called you to be a faithful wife and mother, if God's called you to be a faithful husband and father, if God's called you to a faithful life of singleness, if God's called you to give care to a family member or friend or partner, a loved one during this time, perhaps... You need to be reminded that if God's called you to that, you better be about it. But if you're not on mission, and if your heart's not on mission, sin will find a fertile ground. There's something else I want you to know about sin. Not only does it thrive when mission wanes, but second of all, sin traps us in blindness. Sin traps in blindness. Now let me ask you this question. Have you ever seen somebody sin or heard a story about somebody sinning and said something like this, how in the world could they be that dumb? Here says something like that. Don't say dumb things like that, okay, guys? No, they weren't dumb. We, we look at it sometimes and it seems like the only explanation for some sins is that somebody is stupid. But some of the smartest people I've ever known have done some of the dumbest sinning I've ever seen. Why is that? How is that? It's not because... They're dumb. It's not because they're stupid. It's not because they lack intelligence. They weren't stupid. They were blinded. Sin blinds us. It doesn't allow us to see things the way they are. We talk about this a lot about how faith is like a set of goggles that allows us to see things as they are because it shows us God's reality. But the more we sin, the further we get from faith, the less likely we are to see reality as it is the more likely it is for sin to make sense. Nothing makes more sense in a fallen world than sin. It, it blinds us, first of all, to God's commands. One of the most frustrating things to me about the ongoing discourses that are constant around the story of David and Bathsheba or the way so many people are always trying to get David off the hook. It shows you sometimes when we read the Bible, we worship the wrong heroes. We have misguided allegiance sometimes. There is unquestionable evidence in this passage that David did the wrong thing and David took the initiative. One of the ways that people try to get David off the hook is they say that Bathsheba was out trying to make a show of taking a bath. 
But we miss something in the text when we say that. Notice, notice something just that's very important here. Something we ought to notice. Why was she taking a bath? Why was she doing this? She had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. That is, and there's really no other way to say it, Bathsheba had just finished what we believe is her menstrual period. And so the law required that a woman wash herself ceremonially in order to cleanse herself, in order to be prepared for worship again. In other words, there on her roof, what is Bathsheba doing? Essentially worshiping God, fulfilling the law of God. Now, as soon as David saw her on the roof going through a ritualistic cleansing, he should have immediately been reminded of the law of God, should have been immediately reminded of who he served. He should have gone back inside, maybe gone back to bed, I don't know. But he should have done something besides summon her. But sin blinds us to God's commands. Uh, David's already not where he's supposed to be. If he's just now getting off the couch in the afternoon, you can see that he's allowed a mission drift to happen in his life. And as he goes up there and sees this woman worshiping God, fulfilling God's commands, instead of being shocked away from this temptation, he goes further and deeper into sin because he's blinded. But he's also blind to common sense. He's blind to common sense. Practically, David has a shrewd mind, does he not? He just knows the way the world works. He's got as much common sense, as much street smarts as anyone in the Bible does. And so, just by the fact that she's washing the way she's washing, he should have known two things. First of all, there's no way she's pregnant. Second of all, there's a strong chance she'll get pregnant. And her husband's off at war. And yet sin blinded David even to the practical concerns. It wasn't enough that he was blinded to God's concerns. That should be enough to make a godly man move away from this risk. But these practical concerns, sin blinds him so much that he goes from being ungodly just to plain ignorant, dumb, not thinking. And so David took what wasn't his to do what he ought not to do. One area the text is silent is on how Bathsheba reacted to this. She sees an opportunity Was she unwilling? Was she willing? It doesn't really matter. When the king says, come, you come. When you are summoned by the king, you respond the way the king wants you to respond. We don't know how willing she was, but what we do know unquestionably is that David was abusing royal privilege and authority. He was stepping well beyond the bounds of what God had appointed him as king to do. And so David was blinded. But he was also blind to the righteousness of others. This act of adultery is presented in very stark language. It's very simple. He summoned her. He brought her there. He lay with her. And he sent her on her way. And then not too long after, we don't know exactly how much time, but he gets the word from her. Bathsheba's only sentence in the whole chapter. The author's so intent on focusing on David's actions here. What does she say? I'm pregnant. Well, he learns that in verse 5. He summons Uriah the Hittite. Over and over again, Uriah is called Uriah the Hittite. This is a highlight the author's trying to show us that he is not an Israelite. But isn't it ironic that this non-Israelite, this Hittite, shows more righteousness than the chosen one of Israel? Uriah the Hittite, Bathsheba's husband, is summoned from the battle under the guise of receiving David receiving an update on the war. But what's he really trying to do? I mean, you get the idea. There's a way out of this. She's pregnant, so if only she could spend the night with her husband, everyone would recognize and she would keep her mouth shut because I'm the king. 
that this must be Uriah's baby and not David's. And yet, Uriah the Hittite refuses. The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in boots, he tells the king in verse 11. And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. The Hittite soldier has more character and faithfulness than the chosen king of Israel. And David faced with another opportunity to repent. Instead of doing what's right at this very moment, what does he do? He tries again. He gets Uriah drunk the next night. And again, Uriah chooses righteousness over going and spending the night with his wife. Not being satisfied with one try, David tries again. Blind to the righteousness of others. Blind to the righteousness of God. Blind even to common sense. My friends, don't play with sin. It does more to you. It does more to your heart. It does more to your mind than you realize it does. Sin blinds us. Third of all, sin multiplies without repentance. Sin multiplies without repentance. Again, 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 David is confronted with opportunities to repent. God gives him off ramps out of sin. Now, the consequences are going to be dire, but there are opportunities to stop making things worse, and yet David continues multiplying sin. He has Uriah deliver his own definite sentence to Joab, the commander. Now, what David says to do would be very obvious to all those around him that somebody was trying to have Uriah murdered. And so Joab, perhaps out of loyalty to the king or perhaps to cover his own skin, I don't know, he has all the soldiers go too near the wall. In fact, Joab, to the messenger, quotes uh, this thought about a woman killing someone with a millstone. That's a scene from the book of Judges. He, He knows his commander well enough to know that if David hears this military blunder, he's going to say, why in the world? We all know this. It's, it's in the Bible, for goodness sakes. We know not to do this. Why are you doing this? Shrewdly, Joab wisely has them make a military mistake too near the wall rather than showing his hand and having them abandon Uriah at the line of battle. It's an it's a evil shrewdness, but it's a shrewdness nonetheless. When David hears the story, Here's the report of what happened at the battle. I want you to hear the way the mighty warrior king of Israel responds. David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you. In the original language, it's, Do not let this matter be evil in your eyes. Think about that for a moment. Hang on to that. Keep that in the back of your mind. Do not let this matter be evil in your eyes, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. The sword devours now one and another. Kesarah, Sarah. What will be, will be. What an awful way for a king to speak about a loss of life that he's directly responsible for. David began with adultery. He's lied, he's manipulated, he's slothful during this season of his life, and now he's a murderer. Uh, Friends, I want to let you know something. Sin multiplies, and there's only one firewall against the horrible multiplication of sin in our lives, and that's repentance. 
Some of you right now are thinking, I need to repent of this sin, but you're so fearful of what will happen if you repent. But what you ought to be afraid of is what will happen if you don't. How sin will continue to multiply. What grace repentance is. We so often see repentance as a problem, but repentance is a blessing. It might feel awful right now. It might burn your heart to even consider it, but it is a severe mercy of God to grant you the opportunity to repent. Do not pass it up. Let the blinders fall from your eyes. Let God stop your sin where it is. Turn to Him and bring your sin into the light. Don't be fooled. Don't be fooled. And think that repentance is unnecessary. Because fourth of all, this is our last point, fourth of all, sin is seen by God. Sin is seen by God. One of the great signs of what sin's done to our hearts is that we're more concerned about man seeing our sin than we are about God seeing our sin. But, as we know, David's brilliant. His plan works perfectly. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. And she became his wife and bore him a son. The woman he wanted is now his wife. And nine months later, when the baby comes, the general public will see it as a blessing to a woman whose husband was a national hero. A silver lining, if you will, in a really sad tale. Don't let this be seen as evil in your eyes, Joab. That's what David says. It's just part of keeping a kingdom on the rails. But what's missing in all this equation? What's glaringly missing in all of this story? Notice who's never mentioned. God. David's taken his eyes off the Lord. We, we lose mission when we lose sight of God. We're blinded when we lose the light of God. We refuse to repent because we refuse to bow to God. We become practical atheists when sin takes over our lives. And the last thing we want to think about, the last thing we want to mention, the last thing we want to say is anything to do with God. David has lost sight of the Lord as God. And if God's out of the equation, things have gone perfectly. The plan seemed to have gone just swimmingly, except for this last little phrase. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. The original language says this, but the thing that David had done was evil in the eyes of the Lord. David had tried to sweep this away from Joab. Don't let this be seen as evil in your eyes, Joab. But God saw. God knew. When God struck Saul from the throne, do you know what he told him? He told him that what he had done was evil in his eyes. It's the same phrase, same way of speaking. You see, David tried to wipe away his sin from the eyes of Joab, but nothing escapes the eye of God. My friends, some of you right now may be running from God because you fear his judgment. But I want you to know something. He is all that can cure you of your sin. God sees and God knows when we sin. I want to tell you a reality today. In our fallen world, sin drags everything and everyone down. Nothing 
will escape being drugged into the gaping maw of judgment by sin. In our own power, in our own strength, sin will inevitably bring us to ruin. But remember this, God did not put and God did not keep David on the throne just for David's sake. It wasn't even primarily because of David's righteousness. He put David there by grace in order that David's descendant might sit on his throne by right. The right of his nature and the right of his own personal righteousness. My friends, there is only one hero in the Bible. It's not Adam. It's not Noah. It's not Abraham. It's not Moses. And as we can see today, it's not King David. There is only one hero in the Bible, and he is the only hero who's ever lived, who the nearer we get, the better he gets. Don't be discouraged, my friends. Don't be discouraged by the ruin of sin, even if your own life right now is in shambles because of your sin. I want you to know something. Jesus Christ became low. He went down to the pits in order that He might defeat sin, death, and the devil through His death and ultimately through His resurrection, by raising from the dead and defeating all those things, He tasted the worst that we have in order that He might give us the best that God has. That's the hope we have in Jesus. Because in a fallen world where sin drags everything down into ruin, we recognize that there is hope because in the kingdom of God, things are different. Humble yourselves, my friends. Humble yourselves in repentance before God and He will raise you up through the work of His Son. Because in God's kingdom, by Jesus, through what He's done in the Gospel, everything that goes down must rise again. I want to offer an invitation to you this morning. 